Hello and welcome to The Planet Today, where we cover the latest in climate change, wildlife conservation, renewable energy, and environmental policy. Today is Monday, April 17th, 2023. I'm your host, Matt Norton, here by myself today because we're about to air my interview with Claire Santa Coloma. Before we get into things, here's a quick note from one of our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by KitCaster. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. How do funded startup founders attract prospects and talent? Podcast interviews. How do entrepreneurs with exits find new deals? Podcast interviews. How do C-suite execs differentiate in crowded markets? Podcast interviews. KitCaster books you on top podcasts. Click the link in the show notes for a special offer. Celebrate good conversation. TPT, we are joined by Claire Santa Coloma. Claire is about to begin a new position with the Golden Gate Raptor Observatory in California and was most recently a coastal water bird monitor for the Massachusetts Audubon, where she worked with a team of researchers and wildlife managers to protect the nature of Massachusetts for both people and wildlife. She's previously worked with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, U.S. Forest Service, AmeriCorps, the Wolf Conservation Center, and Binghamton Zoo, among others. Claire and I crossed paths during our freshman year at the University of Delaware, but recently reconnected, so we are thrilled to have her on the show today. Claire, welcome to the planet today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So let's start it from the top. What first got you interested in the environment and sustainability? Oh my gosh. Okay, so I think we have to start way back at the beginning, kind of. Um, so I grew up just being outside all the time. Um, I lived, I was lucky enough to live in a neighborhood where I had a bunch of other kids around my age. And I know this sounds irrelevant, but I swear it's part of the story. Um, so yeah, I just really loved being outside and that's what I was used to. Um, and I guess just being, I don't know, quote unquote, in touch with nature, which sounds really cheesy, but just that's where I like to be. So I had never really thought about you know, what I was going to do when I was older. Um, I probably had some really embarrassing dreams of like being a dancer or something. Um, but yeah, once we were in high school and everybody's asking you, you know, what do you want to do? What do you want to be when you grow up? I still didn't know. I actually thought that I might go into some kind of um, policy. I had originally thought, you know, maybe environmental policy is the route that I want to go down because I had a phase where I was really into politics and I don't know, thought that I was good at arguing or something, <laughs> um, which is really embarrassing now. But um, yeah, I remember I took AP Environmental Science my senior year, and I just really loved it. And I had always loved biology in particular. Um, and then when I took uh, AP Environmental Science, I just, you know, the idea of helping protect so many of the things that the world is facing just was really enticing to me. Um, and I think at that time too, I still wasn't sure if I wanted to do environmental policy or if I wanted to be more on, you know, the ecology field-based side of it, which is a really hard decision, I think, to make when you're 
17 years old. And I know mm-hmm. people, yeah, people have those decisions to make whatever field they're going to go into. But I think being a teenager and trying to think, what is my job going to look like if I do either of these things is really difficult. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned that because I actually, I actually did the exact opposite where I loved wildlife. Um, I also enjoyed politics and thought I was good at arguing, which is <laughs> equally embarrassing now as it was when I was 18, but I ended up going the policy route. So yeah, I, I mean, I get it. I totally get it. <laughs> so that's what you studied at University of Delaware, right? Yeah, I did um, environmental studies with a concentration in sustainability. And then I got my master's there in renewable energy and environmental policy, but definitely focused more on the policy side. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So I, so that's sort of what helped me decide actually. So when I was going, trying to pick different schools to go to, um, I had applied to University of Delaware because they had a great wildlife conservation program. Mm -hmm. And I just really liked the school when I toured it. So I thought, okay, this seems like it's going to fit me and i can study wildlife conservation here so i sort of just fell into that aspect of it gotcha gotcha so was there ever a moment where you know you kind of took this passion for wildlife and realized like this is what i want to do as a career or would you say it was more of just a gradual kind of progression i think it was definitely a gradual progression so i don't know if during college i was like out to lunch or something but i feel like there's some stuff lacking when you're even in school learning all of this stuff about what is your job going to look like. Yeah. So, I mean, I had a great education and I ended up transferring to Binghamton my sophomore year where I studied environmental science. Um, so very similar, but anyways, I still didn't really know what my job was going to look like. I just knew that it was going to be something outside. Um, and then, yeah, I guess it just sort of happened because when I was in my undergrad, everybody was just saying, you know, try to get a hands-on experience. Mm-hmm. So that's why I found the Wolf Conservation Center and I ended up working there or interning there for two summers in a row. And then I interned at the Ross Park Zoo, which was a local zoo in Binghamton during one of my semesters. So I guess I just kind of fell into it. Gotcha. Yeah, it's, it's funny that you bring up like not really knowing what work was going to look like because I think that's something that you know, like we're both in similar fields, so I'm sure that we have similar stories here, but I bet everyone kind of has that same, like, you know, I know what I'm studying. I have no idea what this is going to look like (laughs) when I get out into the real world or whatever you want to call it. And I think the thing for me that was interesting was I kind of like my Eureka moment was, oh my God, you could do stuff that's not be a zookeeper or be a vet because I didn't want to work those long weekend hours, long holiday hours, you know, elephants don't celebrate holidays. So someone needs to take (laughs) care of them. And I knew like, I'm not the best when it comes to science. So I didn't think veterinary school was going to be a good fit for me. And I kind of just lucked into University of Delaware having a good environmental program and being able to see like, oh, not only are there really good jobs in this field, there are a ton of jobs in this field. Yeah, totally. I I know what you're saying, because when you talk about environmental science, it's like, okay, we all know what we're here to help do. And this is why we're going into it. But yeah, knowing what your job, I agree. I also thought, okay, so either I'm going to work at a zoo, or I don't know, like, you always hear about people that are doing like crazy research in other countries, like, you know, that I thought that I needed to like go to Africa or something and, you know, study those types of animals. But There's just so many opportunities, just even locally or wherever you are. Um, 
So, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, and even within that field, you know, we talk about wildlife conservation. Wildlife conservation doesn't look the same when you're talking about mammals versus birds, reptiles, like whatever your avenue is, there's a place to do it in this field, which is so cool, but also probably so daunting for an 18 year old to be like, well, I think this is what I'm going to want to do when I'm 50. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was like, all I know is that I'm good at being outside yeah. pretty much. Like that's all, all I knew. So that's, I just flew by the seat of my pants. So your most recent position with the Massachusetts Audubon, um, what did work look like for you maybe on a day to day? And what did your team do with the coastal waterbird monitoring program? Sure. So, okay, let me start by saying that whenever I'm interviewing for a job, one question that I always ask actually is what does the day to day look like throughout the season? Just because like you were saying, every organization and every conservation effort for every species is going to look completely different. Mm -hmm. So you never, there's no one way that any organization is going to be doing things. And obviously every single position within those organizations is different if that makes sense. So for me, I was a coastal water bird monitor. So I was a crew lead, which basically means you're like the team supervisor. So for me specifically this summer, um, I was based out of the Barnstable region in Cape Cod. And my team was about five people, including myself. And we were monitoring nesting shorebirds specifically. And those species were piping plovers, American oyster catchers, least turns and common turns. Um, and so everything changed throughout the season. So the beginning of the season starts a lot with doing a lot of nest searching. And that is exactly what it sounds like. You're literally looking for nests. Um, you're observing courting behaviors between adults to see, okay, like who's going to pair up for the season. Mm -hmm. um, and then, yeah, looking for nesting behaviors in order to find nests, which is just really cool in general. Um, and then collecting data during this whole time. And then as well, especially once you get into like the height of the season, a lot of these field sites that I was working at are also very public beaches. So that includes a lot of, you know, public facing interaction where it comes to just like educating people about why we're there and who we are and the work that we do and, you know, what we're hoping to protect and, you know, enforcing beach rules, a lot of people bringing their dogs when they're not allowed to bring their dogs, things like that. Yeah. And then just like monitoring nests until fledge and like monitoring the chicks and, you know, presence of predators. So it was really cool, actually. That sounds awesome. And something I'm curious about that, you know, maybe there's not an easy answer to this question, but seasonal work like that, I'm sure presents a ton of different challenges where, you know, when for migratory birds, when they're not in the region that you're you're working on like wh what does a job like that look like maybe in the off seasons or or long term for someone who's there for years for example yeah absolutely so year-round permanent wildlife jobs are extremely coveted because most funding is during the like height of the field season so when, when you have that year-round job it kind of is like a lot of pre-season and post-season work and a lot of it is sort of like still revolving around the field season, but it's a lot of the tasks that you couldn't complete during the season because it's usually so hectic and there's so many other things going on. So for example, like with Mass Audubon, um, during the end of my season as well, um, and then going into the fall, um, so a lot of my coworkers that work there full time, 
or permanently. Um, it just involves a lot of like data proofing. So looking at all the data that we collected all season long and just making sure that it's all looking okay. Um, a lot of inputting that data or transferring it over into more official like maps or, you know, state census forms, things like that. Um, and then of course, like, you know, enforcing like different communications with different landowners and like getting ready for the next season. I mean, making sure that everything's in place to like start, you know, fresh and like have your season start pretty seamlessly. Gotcha. Gotcha. So let's take a, a slight step back. And this is something we talked about a little bit earlier, but I want to talk to you about environmental science and, you know, your college career. So what drew you into environmental science specifically? So, okay. I think some of it is like what I was saying before. I just really loved being outside. And then when I was in school, I really loved biology and I loved earth science, even like back in middle school. And then when I took that AP environmental science class, I was like, wow, we obviously need help here. Um, and it's like all mm -hmm. hands on deck kind of mentality, I guess. So yeah, and then when I went to college and I was studying environmental science with a concentration of ecosystems when I was in Binghamton, like I was saying, I still didn't really know exactly what I wanted to do because you know, when you're in college, you're not job searching really. Like I was looking for yeah. internships during the summer and stuff, but I didn't really know like what I was going to do after. When I worked at the Wolf Conservation Center, which plug for the Wolf Conservation Center, that place is amazing. It's located in South Salem, New York. So anybody that's listening to this, if you want to visit there, you need to schedule a tour, but they're awesome. So that was sort of like my first look at a conservation nonprofit. And I thought like, okay, this is something I would love to do in the future. I was interested in food sustainability as well and farming. Cool. Yeah. Um, and I ended up work working on a farm for a season actually, but I didn't know what I wanted to do. I graduated early by accident and I got a job um, being a prep cook in a kitchen. And I was like, I don't know if this is what I want to do. And then my friend, one of the people that I had mentioned earlier, I grew up in a neighborhood with a bunch of kids my age and we've stayed close. Like most of us have stayed very close, like my whole life. And, you know, one of them is like kind of my brother ish. And he, I remember I saw him when he was home for something like some holiday. And he was like, yeah, I work for this organization called the Great Basin Institute. And I work, I have an AmeriCorps position and I'm living out in Nevada and I'm like doing all this stuff. And I was like, what the heck? That sounds so cool. I would love to do that. And he's just the best person ever. So when I was home and working a little bit in a restaurant, he was like, why don't you apply? They just like posted all these new positions. Why don't you apply? Come out here. You can live with me and all of my friends. You can sleep on the couch in our apartment. And it was in Las Vegas. And he was like, we can share my car just like apply, see if you get it and come out. And I applied and I got it and I like flew. Um, it all happened within like two weeks. That's so awesome. So it was the sweetest thing. I don't think I'll ever be able to repay him honestly for helping me like that because that was my first experience with AmeriCorps and like learning what Great Basin Institute was. Um, and I ended up working for them a few other times. So yeah, it was just sick. And then that was my first experience, like working outside every day, like in the field and mm -hmm. like learning what it's like to collect data in that way. Um, so yeah, I guess that was a long winded way of saying that's kind of how it started. <laughs> gotcha. No, and that's, that's actually a perfect segue into what I was going to ask you about. So, you know, you, you told me about how you got involved with AmeriCorps and, and a little bit about what she did, but 
maybe for somebody else who is listening that they've heard of America or, or, or haven't, what would you say the usual pattern is for getting involved with AmeriCorps and, and what that might look like? Okay, yeah. So for anybody that doesn't know, AmeriCorps is basically a government-run organization, or maybe that's not the right way to put it. It's a program that's run by the government, and it started a really long time ago, actually. Um, and basically, its purpose is to get younger people involved in different acts of service. So you're technically, when you work for an AmeriCorps position, you're called a service member. Um, but AmeriCorps has a bunch of different positions that sort of are like funded through other organizations, if that makes sense. So like working with the Great Basin Institute is something that I always, like anybody that's interested in doing this in college or right after college, getting into this type of thing, I always recommend looking at the Great Basin Institute's job offerings. And most of those positions are kind of like funded partially through AmeriCorps. And I don't know if I'm saying that exactly the right way, but basically the Great Basin Institute, it's called GBI, they get contracts with different government agencies. So it can be the BLM, the Forest Service, US Fish and Wildlife Service, so many different, different agencies. And then those positions, you end up getting paid sort of, you get a stipend through AmeriCorps. And so what that means is you're getting a living stipend of all different wages. It's like they really uh, vary depending on where you are and what the position is. And then once you complete that like contractual agreement, you get an education award, which is what they call it. And depending on the number of hours, so like if you have a 900 hour service agreement or like I forget all of them, 1600 hour, you get a certain amount of money and then you can put that towards, you know, student loans. If you want to go back to school, if you want to like, you know, take a class here and there, you can use that money for that. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. I know a, a bunch of my friends have done AmeriCorps and I don't know, it just seems like everyone gets to go to like such cool places on, you know, some, some people had like a year long commitment, but I think most of my friends were like three to four months. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It seemed like a, a pretty good gig to have in the summer in between semesters. So it's so cool. It is. It's really cool, especially because like what you were saying before, it's like, well, what do these jobs look like? And what does it look like to work for like a government agency? And working an AmeriCorps position, especially through GBI, and there's other ones, there's Student Conservation Association, Conservation Legacy, that are all sort of that like middleman nonprofit that kind of bridges the gap mm -hmm. between service and the agency. Um, but yeah, it really gives people like an opportunity because you're working alongside the employees that are working for that agency. And in a lot of cases, you're doing so much of the same work. Um, and so it just gives you, you know, a new perspective on, okay, this is what it would be like if I got this type of job, especially because, you know, I'm sure you've probably looked at USA jobs before yeah. and it is like a riddle. Each job posting is essentially a riddle. It's very confusing. And you're like, I don't know what this means. But once you like have experience working there, you're like, oh, this is probably what they mean by, you know, this responsibility mm -hmm. or like, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. And I think even after looking at those job posting, it's it's still confusing to see like their tier one <laughs> service, tier two, like whatever the different levels of things that they have for requirements. Every time I've looked, I'm like, yeah. I think that what I have done applies to this, but we'll see. <laughs> yeah. Like who knows? I'll give it a shot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's always better to let them say no than to me be like, I don't think that I can uh, qualify for this one. Right. Yeah, exactly. 
So I want to talk to you a little bit more about some of the government work you've done, uh, specifically with the U.S. Forest Service and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service. So how did you get involved with those two organizations? And, and maybe tell me a little bit about what you did for them. Sure. So when I, I worked for the U.S. Forest Service first, and like when I say worked for, I was not directly hired by the U.S. Forest Service. This was through the Great Basin Institute. It was an AmeriCorps position. Um, and I think... I think I was just called a forester. I can't really remember. Um, but that was sort of my second field position that I had taken. So just going back a step, when I, I was working in Las Vegas, um, I was lucky to be on a crew that was um, monitoring for the presence of Mojave Desert tortoises uh, inside the city limits and just outside the city limits of Las Vegas, Cool. which is really cool because there's all different things that you can do as a service member, um, like trail work and all that kind of thing. Um, but I knew that I wanted to go sort of the wildlife route. But at the same time, you know, those jobs can be hard to come by. And I was also mm -hmm. just interested in like doing something different and being outside. And I also just like wasn't completely sure what exactly I wanted to do. So um, I worked for the Forest Service uh, in the Sierra Nevadas, and that was in Northern California in El Dorado National Forest. And we were basically following, my crew was following a prescription, um, which is basically like a document, I guess, or like literally a prescription that um, mm -hmm. talks about like what the optimal forest health for a particular area looks like um, in regards to like fuels reduction um, and just overall forest health. Yeah. So we were um, doing like timber cruising and spraying trees with paint like literally spraying them for um to mark like which trees were going to stay and which were going to get cut down so that was that and it was awesome um that's like one of the most beautiful places in the country i don't know if you've ever been out there i've been to vegas but not too far outside of the casinos <laughs> <laughs> gotcha. yeah and then when i worked for the uh, u.s fish and wildlife service that was like really cool and if i, I may say so myself and <laughs> that was my first experience working really closely um, with birds and raptors um, in particular. So that was through, that was working with the California Condor Recovery Program based out of U.S. Fish and Wildlife Services office in Southern California in Ventura. And that was also an AmeriCorps position. Um, but yeah, so basically... Yeah, so we were monitoring the Southern California flock of California condors. So there are multiple flocks um, in and around California and Arizona and Southern Utah. Um, there was about 90 or so condors in this flock that we were monitoring. So yeah, that was my first experience working with large, large birds like that. And it was just a really awesome experience. And that's sort of what like, has led me to want to work with birds in the future. Gotcha. And again, a perfect segue into what my next question was going to be. <laughs> How did this all lead you to the Golden Gate Raptor Observatory, which when did you say you're going to be starting there? Is it in the early summer? It's soon. Um, I'm going to start in like the middle of May. Oh, awesome. All right. So that's coming up quick. I know, right? I'm really sweating about <laughs> it. Um, yeah. So when I worked uh, with the Condor Recovery Program in Ventura, I met so many amazing people um, just like that I was able to work with and people that would come to the refuge and people always, it was just like inspiring, I guess, which sounds really cheesy, um, but to be around people that have worked with raptors in the past mm -hmm. um, and just like that was their passion. 
um, and just kind of like learning from them and being friends with them. And then just getting to like work up close um, and see California condors up close as well as in the wild. So just for some context, we would work on one of two refuges. They're very remote. So they're kind of a couple hours outside of civilization, um, like deep in the mountains. Yeah. And we would be out there for about 10 days at a time working from the refuge. And we did a lot of things like all from, you know, nest searching to like watching courting behaviors. We did supplemental feedings with um, carcasses, which is kind of gross. <laughs> um, <laughs> so things like that. And then during trapping season, we try to trap every condor within our flock, um, which literally means like what it sounds like we're trapping them. Mm -hmm. And then we do a full workup on them. And so like the combination of getting to see them in the wild and like in their natural habitat and then up close as well was just so cool. Um, and so, yeah, so since then, I've really wanted to try to work with raptors in the future. And I actually have wanted to work for this organization, the Golden Gate Raptor Observatory, for a few years because um, I had heard about them back in like 2019 or 2020. And so, yeah, so now it's happening. Finally. That is so exciting. Thank you. And um, when you when you're talking about tracking the the birds and everything, did you do bird banding or like any sort of tagging to monitor like where they were flying to when you couldn't see them? Yes. So for condors, it's a combination of a lot of things. So pretty much primarily you're using radio telemetry, which is like you carry around a huge antenna, pretty much. It's like this big, awkward, like metal device um, combined with basically a radio. Um, and so each condor that we've already trapped is equipped with a um, VHF transmitter. And that transmitter is set to its own individual frequency. And so we have all of like giant frequency charts that are like show which condor number with and tag number aligned with the frequency. And then your radio like can tune into all of those frequencies. And so when you're using your giant antenna, you're seeing which condors are in the area. So that's sort of like how you get an idea of like who's coming in or um, like who's around or which pairs might be like pairing up for the next, you know, nesting season. Um, so yeah, a combination of that, we have a lot of nest cameras or they have a lot of nest cameras uh, in their cavity nests, which is like a whole thing. Like you have to do full nest entries and like climbing um, like rappelling down into their nests and like replacing nest cameras oh, and wow. things. Yeah, I never, yeah. I never held on one, but one time I had the opportunity to like candle a condor egg, which is like, they're literally like this big, which nobody can see that, but they're <laughs> huge. And you like hold a flashlight in the dark over it to see like if it's fertile or not. Oh, cool. Yeah, it's so cool. And then the adult is like, right near you watching making sure you don't do anything Yeah, like what are you doing <laughs> yeah well, why are you here um so yeah i think that was the question right how do we like see how they're where they are yeah 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 well awesome they're very lucky to have you and i'm excited to to hear about how everything's going in a couple of months well thank you so much yeah i'm so excited to start i mean it's always nerve-wracking to start a new job but it's exciting yeah and i mean i think with anything like if you're not nervous then it's not worth it like you should, True. you should be excited and you should feel all of those anxious feelings of like, wow, this is so cool. And, you know, it's, it's always exciting. So I hope that's the focus. 
Yes, no, definitely. Awesome. So if people want to keep up with your work or the Golden Gate Raptor Observatory, where is the best place to do that? Totally. Yeah. So um, I'd say like if you want to follow along with any of the places that I've worked for in the past, they usually have decent social media. So Mass Audubon has a great Instagram if you want to keep up with all the nesting shorebird drama and like what they're doing every year. And then um, Golden Gate Raptor Observatory, I've been following them on Instagram for a few years and just like bombing over all the work that they do. Um, so yeah, I believe they're just Golden Gate Raptor Observatory on Instagram. And yeah, I think those are all my plugs. You could follow me on LinkedIn, but that might be a little lame. <laughs> <laughs> all right, well, we can, uh, we can plug all those in the show notes. So if you're listening now and wanna go check out any of those places, yeah, feel free to swipe up and then click on any of the links. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. This was awesome. And before we let you go, we end every interview with three fun rapid fire questions. So, oh my gosh. Okay, I'm ready. <laughs> what is your favorite animal? Oh my God, wait, I feel like that's actually kind of a hard question. I have a lot. <laughs> <laughs> you can give us a couple. <laughs> okay. Well, I have to say the California condor because that was like my intro into birds. And I just like, they're just so cool. And they're really weird too mm -hmm. which is part of why i like them so i'll go with that all right number two what is something you do to be more sustainable in your own life i mean i try to do a lot of little things okay one thing is obviously like the normal stuff like trying to reduce like plastic waste all the you know boring things um i'm vegetarian and i did that in large part because of um environmental reasons Nice. I was vegan for a long time, but now I'm just vegetarian. Gotcha. No, and, and I think that those are really important because if every single person listening to this show and, and beyond that were to cut out plastics or even just cut out red meat or eat less red meat, for example, everything adds up. And, you know, I, I hate to put the, the onus on us when a lot of this is going to have to come from corporations, but I still like to do my part, even though like my one or two things that I'm doing maybe don't make a huge impact, but I don't know. I, I like to think of collective action being a huge part of this whole mission. Yeah, totally. That's the thing. It's like, I think in terms of your personal consumption, it does not compare to larger corporations and like the action that needs to be taken there. So like, it shouldn't be on us, but at the same time, like for me personally, that's one way that I do it kind of, and it's more nuanced than that, but just in general, yeah. yes, I'm vegetarian. <laughs> nice. Nice. All right, last one. What is one environmental topic you think my listeners should be more aware of after hearing from you today? I think just overall, I guess wildlife conservation as a whole um, and different threats that, you know, all different species around the world and in your local areas are facing, um, especially when it comes to birds. You know, so many bird species are migratory species. And so that means that it doesn't just have to do with you know, the threats that they're facing when they land in your backyard and they nest for the season. It's the threats that they face when they're, you know, migrating down south for their overwintering grounds or wherever that may be. So they're just kind of like getting it from all angles. Um, so I think just like, I guess, maybe learning a little bit about that if you're interested in that kind of thing, um, because there's just so much to it. And it's just such a complicated subject. Absolutely. All right. Thank you again for your time today. This was great. And I am very excited for our listeners to hear it. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. This was so fun. And that will do it for today's episode of TPT. Thanks again to Claire for her time today. We'll be back on Friday for another episode, but check out our socials at Planet Today Pod for more TPT in the meantime. 
For The Planet Today, I am Matt Norton. See you on Friday. Thank you.